Hi, welcome to the Wellness Doctors Podcast with Dr. Lorena and Dr. Vanessa. We are both medical doctors who talk about how to optimize health and well-being so that you can be empowered to make better healthy choices, enrich the lives of people around you and join us in the evolution of healthcare. Hey everyone, so this is Vanessa again and welcome back to the Wellness Doctors Podcast and today we have a very, very special guest from Costa Rica. So say hi to Freddie Starr. Hi, everybody. Hi. So Freddie is a neurofeedback practitioner or neuropractor, as he likes to call it. So I'd like to give a little introduction to Freddie. So Dr. Starr is a computational neuroscientist. So what that means is he has a very strong background in brain computer science, essentially. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. So in uh, his training, he went to Columbia University. Um, then you worked, um, you did your medical degree uh, in the United States. And then you went on to do a lot of adult and child psychiatry training in very prestigious institutes. And um, after that, you completed your fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry. And then you went on to do your board certification in quantitative EEG and neurofeedback in 2007-2008. And then you, after a while, you, you started your own company, Minerva. So we can talk about that too. So essentially what Minerva is, is a remote-based computer-assisted cognitive rehab to help patients all over the world. And I guess with COVID, everything's moved online now. So that's probably, <laughs> you were ahead of the, the, the curve when it, before it all happened. So, um, so he's currently living in Costa Rica. You're surfing, you're enjoying great food. Um, you're also learning Mandarin. So, Huan <laughs> Me. And uh, so Dr. Starr was also recognized as one of the pioneers of neurofeedback. It's a book called Neurofeedback in the Past 50 Years. And uh, he was named one of the pioneers in this field. So I'm really super excited to have um, Dr. Starr, whom I met through his company, essentially, which also has um, its reach in Hong Kong and 25 countries in the world. And I just had to get him on our podcast. So welcome so much. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah. Appreciate it. So let me just ask, um, we were talking about this before the podcast started. So what was your journey from being a psychiatrist to now kind of putting that behind you and moving on to a new thing? Well, uh, certainly wasn't overnight. I mean, um, I would say that it was somewhat of um, a night sea journey. You know, Jung would have uh, said that, you know, I went on sort of a left path, a hero unwilling. And, uh, you know, I just uh, sort of gave up on what I knew and mm -hmm. went really far afield of my science training. Yeah, because you were uh, trained conventionally, right? So uh, you went yeah. through all the allopathic kind of training. So, I mean, what, well, not, what would yeah. be your I mean, beyond that? Beyond that, yeah. uh, Vanessa, um, my father was a scientist. Right. Right. Like, I grew up in science. That was <laughs> just what I was going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, there was no real 
anything like that, anything, any belief in anything else. It was, you know, such, I believe, psychiatry, you know. Um, so, and, and really that actually, a lot of it, you know, in my own uh, tragedy. So uh, what, what, I guess, you know, just analyzing this, uh, Doc, um, <clears throat> I have, you know, I really like Viktor Frankl. And I followed yeah. that logo therapy, search for meaning, and I had meaning, and uh, I liked therapy and prediction of what would happen and all these things. Well, guess what? What happens when it does happen? What do I have? What did I learn? What can I do, right? I was a doc in the box, mm -hmm. and I was um, having to pr uh, give people medication against their will. Yeah. Court mandate. And uh, that was not something I felt as though I could do after mm -hmm. a while. So I sort of saw that and I was just going through. And I just uh, stopped prescribing meds. I didn't want that responsibility. I stopped trying to wanting to label people. I wanted to look at the brain and see what was going on there. And so I started just developing my school of thought. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, have, you know, been fortunate to have had very good outcome. Yeah. So let's talk about neurofeedback and what brain waves and everything to do with it. Yeah. So I guess number one question is, you know, this is the podcast for Neurofeedback 101. What is a brain wave? Well, um, Shoots, I was just learning how to say that in Mandarin. Da now is that brain? Da now, that's the big brain. Big yeah. brain. Yeah. Big the big yeah. brain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I learned computer too, which is yeah. Um, so anyway, but um, brain a brain wave is um, an electrical. Um, it's an electrical wave that happens in the brain. Your body is not just a biochemical reactor, but it also is um, making electrical current. It's one of the ways nerve cells transmit information, and that's especially true in the brain. So I think that for a very long time, people have learned a lot about serotonin and dopamine and chemicals and, and all of that stuff. That's the soup. That's the stew, yeah. right? There's also a spark. So the, the, the chemicals have to assist in producing the electrical activity. So when you have a lot of brain waves all making this electricity together, they make waves. And, you know, it's very much like ocean waves. They, they ebb and they flow all through the brain, very much like. Hmm. So how many types of brain waves are there? Well, a lot. Um, I mean, it's a spectrum, but you know, there's a spectrum. They go, it's, they, they go actually brain, brain waves go quite high, much higher than we actually measure. Um, hmm. But what we look at are, um, we, we kind of divide brain waves. When I say we, I mean, people that are um, in this field uh, talk about delta brain waves, uh, theta brain waves, alpha brain waves, and beta brain waves. So, you know, and then beta has two kinds. There's a 
mid and a fast beta or well, there's three actually. I mean, I, I don't want to get too specific with it here, but if I can just tell you what, what, what they are is that delta brain waves are slow. Beta brain waves are fast brain waves. Our brain should be making all of those different brain waves at any given time, but it's a matter of how much it's making at what, at, at when it's doing something. So when you're sleeping, your brain should be making or, or should be delta waves, at least in specific sleep. And, and that's one of the things that's a very deep, deep sleep. Some people have brains that when they're awake, they actually have delta in them too much. Maybe they hit their so they're head. Kind or of they, sleeping. They're walking. <laughs> they're sleeping yeah, when they're awake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a client many years ago now. This is uh, 2013. Um, and uh, this was an individual who actually visited me. And when I first, he was an executive. Um, and when I first looked at his scan, um, he said, okay, what's your first, first thing? Just don't, don't hold back. What's the first thing you're going to tell me about my brain? What's the first thing I said, get a pen. He goes, okay, okay, okay. I got a pen. What's the first thing? Said, that was the first thing. You're going to need a pen because you're not going to remember anything I'm going to tell you. <laughs> He's like, yeah, oh, you're right. You're right. Because his brain was not recording in the memory area. It was in Delta. He had a head injury. And I knew that auditorily, he was not in the information I was giving him. So I, you know, for, for students that I'm working with, I call people who have, you know, I, I help them remember by saying dreamy Delta. So Delta yeah. is the dreamy brainwave. If you have too much Delta in your head, you tend to be sleepy, fatigued. Your brain is, is, is unable to get going in the morning. People who have that tend to have trouble waking up, transitioning from sleep to wake. They're like groggy for a long time. Um, hmm. And people who don't have enough Delta, say I can think of a, a, a pretty obvious condition, which would be narcolepsy, where there's actually destructive receptors in, in the brain. Um, you see blue in Delta, a dearth, it's too low. Right. So you see not enough Delta. That person can't sleep. Yeah. Um, theta is um, people who have too much Theta tend to be dreamy or tend to have trouble to get going. So that what I say to remember that one is Theta, Theta, couch potato. Yeah. Right. Because people often get distracted and they watch television. And, you know, that's that's often the classic ADD, classic attention deficit disorder, if we're going to use that word or that, that mm. you know, vernacular. Um, and then um, people who have alpha, I say moon unit alpha. Because yeah. those are individuals that are really inattentive, but they tend to have difficulty following like a logical pattern or staying on track with something. They might get off on tangents. Um, you know, they can't get to like a salient point, say, in a reading comprehension test. Um, yeah. But they might test normal on an attention and concentration test. Um, mm. And then beta, buzzy, buzzy beta. So people that have too much beta are buzzing in their heads. They're anxious. They're unable to calm down. Um, and so those would sort of be a description of how I, I teach those. So I guess what you're describing is when these brainwaves are not serving as well, if they are appearing in the wrong type of situation, whereas if they appear in the right type of situation, for example, if I'm doing something 
very high energy or I'm going on a roller coaster, I'll naturally be producing a lot of high energy, more beta waves. Would that be correct? You you should, one would expect that. You shouldn't fall asleep on a roller coaster. Yes, you shouldn't fall asleep on the roller coaster. Or, or so, for example, you shouldn't yeah. fall asleep while you're getting a QEEG, a brain scan, for three minutes with your eyes closed. And so an individual yeah. that does think they think that's normal. It's not. Yeah. So I can see that they actually sort of went to sleep with their eyes closed in three minutes. And that really shouldn't happen. Yeah. Or if they're drifting off into dreamy land and they're not paying attention to what they need to do. Right. But when they can do it well, then the brain waves work to help us do what we need to do. Yeah. Well, when they're in the process. So they're not, my point is they're not, they're not pathology. They're exactly. not disease. We all have these waves. Right. It's just that when they don't work for us. It's very easy to fall into that trap and start to think that, oh, fate is bad. No, it's just a wave that's supposed to be in your brain that does something. Theta brain waves are believed to actually um, be activated when we're being creative. Um, the American mm -hmm. inventor, um, Thomas Edison, uh, it's rumored that he used to use, uh, he used to go to sleep. He would, he would take his sketch pad and he would lay down and he would have a metal ball in his hand and he would have a plate on the floor and he would put his hand over yeah. the plate. Sleep. His hand would relax. The ball would hit the plate. It would wake him up and he would start writing. He was actually using his theta brainwaves in a way to tap into that creative response. Yeah. They, they solve problems when they are kind of mental doodling. You know, they're, they're not fully asleep, but they're kind of drifting off. And then somehow it opens up this creativity and they connect two dots and they solve, you know, amazing problems. And, and that is, you know, believed to be when your brain switches into a more like a global gestalt state. So when you, when I see people who say don't have, have a deep, have, don't have enough they aren't making enough theta waves in their brain, you know, they might mm. not feel creative. They might have trouble yeah. with creativity. They might, you know, say, I want to paint or I want to do poetry or something, but it's, they, they don't feel that ability or that spark. So the writer's block. Exactly. I was just going to say, exactly. I had a writer with that. Uh, yeah. So... You know, we, we can measure brain waves, so, you know, we, we can measure the heart's waves with uh, EKG or ECG. And we can even measure muscles' waves. So how do we measure the brain waves in our brain? Because it's sort of covered in a skull and it's, we can't touch it. And... So um, we have sensors. And like a looks a little bit like a shower cap or a cap that you might swim with to keep your hair dry. And the cap yeah. has wires and sensors. The sensors are in specific spots along the skull. And so you could think of almost like global positioning satellite system, right? Those sensors are all sort of trying to triangulate where things are coming from. And, yeah. and so the brain makes current. The current is microvolt, very low voltage. Yeah. But with... So not what we're getting out of the socket from the wall. <laughs> Much less. Way less than that. <laughs> way, way less. Like logarithmic, orders of yeah. magnitude less. Yeah. Um, so the, but 
with specific material, we can pick up those small microvolts with these sensors. And mm -hmm. then, that's, then they go into a, what's called an amplifier. That's an EEG box increases the signal so the computer and also does other things it filters out noise and stuff like that and then it sends the signal to the computer then the brain waves can be analyzed okay so an analogy would be like an electric guitar where you flick the line like the string on an electric guitar it's it's connected to the amplifier and it comes out much louder on the stereos and you can tune out all the background noises as well. Correct. Cool. So that's what we call an EEG, right? Electroencephalogram. Encephal being the Latin name for brain. Correct. I think it's Greek. Is I it think, Greek? I think oh. that sounds Greek. Yeah. Encephal. 50% chance, right? Anything you learn in, in medical school. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it is an electrical picture of the head. And that is the EEG. That was, that is the, just a very conventional scan. If I could make a comparison to a heart scan, when you go to a doctor yeah. and they get an EKG or ECG, right? Electrocardiogram. Those are the electrical waves from your heart that are being recorded. Now, with a lot of sophisticated software nowadays, you can take that EKG and make a picture of the heart. Uh, a long time ago, you couldn't yeah. do that. You just got the waves, yeah. right? When I went to dinosaur medical school and the dinosaurs were roaming. And um, so the same thing is true with EEG, the electro with the one of the brain, electroencephalogram, which is that we can take that data into a computer and analyze it using specific statistical and mathematical transformations to see the brain sort of in action, see it working. So is that what the Q stands for instead of QEEG? It's quanti quantifiable. Exactly, quantitative, exactly. So it's just lots of computational studies and, and algorithms to kind of make it into a map with lots of colors. I mean, I, I just, I can, you know, in, it, in its purest form, the way that it's been done over the last, say, 20 years, not you know, changing a little bit, but in its purest form, it's, it's, um, what we do is we take a time series of, of brain waves. So make sure there's no eye blinks, no muscle, no movement. And then with that time series, uh, what we do is, uh, make what's called a spectral analysis. So we look at it on a graph. It shows all the brain waves and it shows the frequency and it shows how much microvolts, how much volts. It's also called an FFT or fast Fourier transform. Average database of individuals or any individual. You can compare it to expert athletes. You could, whatever you want to compare yeah. it to. You could compare the, the person's yeah. brain to then a, um, a set of other people. So if someone comes to you and they have symptoms, so either they are inattentive or they have anxiety problems, or they have flashbacks from a traumatic experience. What sort of things are you looking for in these maps? And what is it telling you? I'm going from the brain outward, right? And these are symptoms yeah. that are downstream. Um, so uh, when I'm looking at 
a brain, a basic map of the brain, uh, the first thing I'm doing is looking at general patterns. So my eye, I've seen 25,000 of these uh, now. I, I can recognize, say, what someone might diagnose as post-traumatic stress disorder. But the problem is that then, you know, that, so then that has nervousness, which is what we call anxiety, right? Foreboding, feeling of dread, worry, uh, some difficulty in functioning. Um, that is a very general term that I find appears in so many things. I mean, so many things that then we're calling post-traumatic stress disorder. We're calling attention deficit disorder. Anxiety to me means that your brain is somehow operating inefficiently. And so it's causing you consciously to feel like you have to monitor your environment more. It's tricking you because hmm. it knows something's wrong. It's missing a channel. So because it's missing a channel, it has yeah. to create some level of hypervigilance, right? I'm going to use a technical term there, but some level of nervousness. So you're looking around because maybe you're not going to hear from something coming from this way because there's a delay between this year and this year. Yeah. Did that make sense? So it's basically reversing what we would see clinically as a symptom versus why is the brain making us feel that way? Because, I mean, the reason why we have symptoms is because the body's trying to communicate with us, right? Even if it's pain, even if it's anxiety, even if it's insomnia, the brain or the body is saying something's not right, go fix it. Right. Right. But then it, it basically becomes a runaway loop because there is no feedback because sometimes the problem is no longer there. Right. There is no longer this lion chasing you, but you still think there is an existing problem because it never went away because that part of the brain isn't functioning to say, hey, we got this. It's solved. Let's move on. Could it's be. still stuck in that moment. Yeah, it could be stuck in that moment. For example, if someone has PTSD and it keeps recurring and recurring and recurring. Well, PTSD, so something I've, that, that's the, one of the areas I have, I think, delved into the most in, in the course of my yeah. career. Um, and I, I find that PTSD often travels with traumatic brain injury, first of all. There, there is, there is comorbidity. If, we, if you had a horrible right. car accident, then right. yes. Um, in addition, it's possible that individuals who have a traumatic brain injury and have a trauma or a stressor and then cannot properly adapt to the was not functioning properly in the first place, go on to develop PTSD. Right. So I think there's two things. So then it's one after the other. In actuality, what's PTSD? It's really a classical conditioning response, right? Mm. You want to talk about ways that people learn, right? People learn things. Um, when you get traumatized, you 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 have this. That's a nor you're you're having a normal response. Your 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 anxiety 
your child goes to the dentist, right? The pain, the, the skin, that's all the, the unconditioned, right? It's all, it's supposed to happen, but the dentist is the thing that becomes the trigger. Condition now to associate the dentist with the pain and, and fear, right? And then everything around that dentist. Yeah. So, so yeah. that, that shows up in the brain. I mean, certainly when it's severe yeah. enough, I mean, neuroscience has shown this, I mean, you know, through now several decades of, of imaging studies of, you know, when you are, when, when you have severe PTSD, when, when an individual has a severe stress or a severe trauma or chronic severe trauma, they lose volume in their hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that helps with remembering it helps with it. it's not all about it but it helps yeah. actually the amygdala which is the fear center gets bigger and the hippocampus which is the yeah. area that we can access in memories gets smaller so when they come and see someone like me they'll be always in this constant state of hyperactivation and their complaint would be i have brain fog i can't remember what i did i'm constantly scatterbrained so that's because the structures in the brain are compensating and one's getting bigger and one's getting but, smaller. But then also what, you know, it could be, you know, once you start really looking, you know, it could be anything from something that is unknown, like a chronic fatigue type picture, right? Where I don't know yeah. the underlying cause to a traumatic brain injury to a genetic uh, attention deficit where you have just some difference in your brain. Um, so, so to me, when I was doing conventional psychiatry, I just felt blind. Once I started seeing QEEG, I just felt like I couldn't even do a proper evaluation. Unseen. Yeah, I couldn't unsee it anymore because I'd be looking at people and I, I, what's going on in there? So yeah, exactly. You can't unsee it. Good way. Good way. Yeah. So I guess we still have these very innate abilities to learn this way. Even, you know, we talked about associating an object or a person with a bad experience, but nature intended us to learn this way because we can also associate good things with a certain object. So for example, if I happen to be a caveman and I found bees and honey in a certain location, Right. If I see a lot of certain types of flowers and I know that there's going to be bees around and I go search for honey, then I learned that certain things sort of get chunked together. And then that helps me learn that if I see this, I'll probably get that. So the, the classic way is the Pavlovian dog training. I think people are more familiar that Pavlov's dogs were trained when they were given food, he would ring a bell. So the dogs were associating the food with the bell and they start salivating because there's food. And then after a while, they just hear the bell and salivate because they think dinner's coming. So that's what we call classical conditioning or, or training. Um, but with um, the other type of training, which is called operant training, Let's get into that a little bit. So that's really what neurofeedback is about. So all well and good, you've mapped out your brain, you know, you can see stuff going on. So then what do I do about it? I want to train well, it. Well, uh, let me modernize the examples. Um, the first one, we don't have to be cave people. Um, we can use the example of grades <laughs> in school. 
grades in school. Yeah. So uh, if you get good grades, you get good grades in school, you have good experiences, you're happy, it's rewarding, uh, it's additive, you, you have the benefit of learning. You, you, that would be an example of how um, it's just, it's not something that we, it's not like, like honey in the caveman is something we, we have to eat the honey, but we, we certainly don't have to write an essay, right? So that would be like yeah. an example of where you're learning a new thing that's actually not physiologic, right? It's not something that innately your okay. body is doing. So that's really where the yeah. distinction between author and editing lies to me and, and just thinking about this subject for a lot. <laughs> so people yeah. believe that neurofeedback is working on a principle of offer and I'm one of them. Um, but uh, so what is operant conditioning? Well, that's a big lot of words there. Uh, there was a, a psychologist named B.F. Skinner. Um, he came after Pavlov. And what he wanted to do was see if he could teach animals to do new things instead of the bell and the dog, because the dogs are, as you pointed out, already drooling with the food. Which, by the way, and a good example of classical conditioning current day is television. Okay, it, the fear response with the with the noise and when they introduce a scary story, you start associating that and it starts conditioning you. There, there, there's an element of that going on with food, and yeah. But anyway, so so that is the classical conditioning box. Operant conditioning box is when you yeah. teach somebody something new. And um, neurofeedback is working on this principle. It feels good and it's rewarding. What's happening? The computer is reading the brain waves. And it's reading the brain waves. And it's comparing the brain waves to what an expert like myself has set the computer up to read for that in person. It's saying, does this match their perfect brain? Does their brain they have right now match their perfect brain? And it keeps saying that. And, and when the brain, when their brain electrically matches the perfect operating brain, they get a reward. Now you can give, you know, you can give a pigeon like a bird seed, you know, but humans, they don't work that way so well. Um, you, you have to give them a video or something enjoyable to do. Generally, you have a, a nature scene or a, if people want a movie, generally people can watch what they do. Um, and that movie is it's going off and on in time with the brain waves. Yeah. When the person's brain matches the perfect brain that the computer thinks the, the movie plays, when the person's brain drifts off into, the, into their kind of like unbalanced brainwave pattern, the movie stops. But this is happening so that your conscious mind can't even keep up with it. The computer is talking to your brain in brain language because the brain is, is electrical. The computer is pinging it with question, a question. It's saying, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this electrical asana? Can it goes, I can make that for a second. It goes, okay, boom, movie plays. And then it goes, oh, I forgot. And it goes away and the movie stops. And that's, and it's just shaping the brain to move gently into a different electrical pattern as a result of having a different electrical. 
the person has different different behavior. Yeah. So in operant conditioning, the person has to do something that looks good and then get rewarded for it. Positive, not to get too crazy there. Let's stick with positive. <laughs> just, just to say, you know, positive is when you get rewarded for doing the right thing, and negative is when you get for doing the wrong I'll thing, let you which get away we're not trying to do here. <laughs> positive definitely works a lot better in the long term. You know, if you were to go to the gym and you did a really hard move, like, you know, a one hand handstand, and you finally managed to do it and you get rewarded with praise and love and, you know, lots of nice food afterwards, you know, you'd want to keep doing that. And you want to keep doing it so that it's perfect. So that is okay, basically surfing. operant conditioning. Surfing. You go out there. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. You get rewarded with the nature. Your 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 compadres, your your friends, your you know people cheer you. You feel that reward if you get a good weight back. So you want to go and exercise outside of surfing because that reinforces and you you know you'll do better at surfing. And then, but when you do something wrong and you fall, right? That's punishment. Right. And there's positive and negative yeah. punishment. So, yeah, you can take away or you can add. Yeah. But, you know, it's still necessary because, you know, when children are growing up, they need to learn how to set boundaries, what's OK, what's not OK. So parents would use different types of rewards and punishment. One of the things I learned very early on in neurofeedback, my, you know, instructors, um, Judith Lubar, who's since passed away, um, she did a lot of working on the schedules of reinforcement and what works best for use punishment. Ever in neurofeedback, it should only yes. be positive reinforcement, and which is somewhat different if you take you know from like a typical therapy situation. It's a little different because you can't help but sometimes react. Right? Unless you're doing the Freudian, you know, you're on the yes. couch, you don't see my face, but you might probably even still pick up a voice. Um, so that is really, I think, special about it. You Computer speak, doesn't you judge. Don't, you're just watching something and feeling better. It sounds amazing. People don't it's like exercise. Yeah. It does take effort. It does take commitment. And again, it's not the be all and end all, right? That's why you start with a brain. In cases, there are specific patterns that might lend themselves better to say traditional psychiatric treatment or there's no reason why both don't exist hand in yeah. hand either it's like why does it have to be either or i mean if there's a new way of helping people then why not incorporate it into you know our new way of of treatment so how i see it is if someone's brain is not physically well they're not eating well they're not sleeping well they're not you know, they, they had a, a, a big injury to one side of the brain or they had brain surgery, but the hardware is physically not good. So then obviously you won't expect the software to run very well. But at the same time, you also need the software to be optimal. So if the, you can have a perfect brain, but it's just not taught to do the right thing or the correct thing for that time, it doesn't matter how good your brain is. It doesn't matter how many supplements you take. It doesn't matter what foods you eat if you don't train your brain to, to run good programs. So for me, it goes hand in hand. You need both. You just 
Uh, just I have an interesting story of uh, a young younger man that I saw several years ago who um, he lived in the UK and he said he got so traumatized from like feeling that he decided to turn off his emotions. And so he did these specific meditations and he can't feel anything. Alexithymic. Mm. And so uh, I thought that sound, that's what I said. Hmm. Okay, this sounds like something else. This sounds like not a case for neurofeedback, is what this <laughs> sounds like. He did. No, he really, really did. It, it, was, it was hypocoherent. Yes, I was shocked. So yeah. he did that to himself. We yeah. got him better with neuro. He did neurofeedback. Well, I guess he deliberately do that. But I guess a lot of people right. subconsciously do that. You know, if your brain has had some sort of assault, um, you would want to... For example, I think why people have dissociative symptoms or depersonalization is part of the brain shutting down or they have blackouts or memory lapses. The brain is protecting you from really traumatic things. Or when it's trying to process things, you get things like um, flashbacks or nightmares because a certain part of your visual field in the, in the brain that helps you see is overreactive and it's trying to review the, the video and say, hey, let's kind of you know move on beyond this but it, you can't and so it gets stuck in this do you know that's exactly what i see so interested to see what you can see on the map because that's what i see in the person in well, front of me but I, you're I could, looking at the brain i could show you um i did a large data set of individuals with ptsd using um, artificial intelligence analysis and um i did find a specific area that is hyperactive in the visual cortex was the unifying thing. The unifying factor was Which makes high, high beta, right, uh, sorry, left occipital, left occipital temporal. Yeah. So I've spoken to a few people about neurofeedback and I've got some questions which at the time I didn't think was an issue. But then when I got asked it, I was like, okay, that I can see why people have concerns. So for example, parents would be concerned if you're going to mess with my kid's brain. Are they going to learn bad habits? Are they going to be like Pavlov's dog? Are they uh, it is able to make symptoms worse? These example? are all very, very, these are salient questions. And I can only speak to one practitioner with a, a lot of experience anecdotally, right? Because we haven't gotten to a point where we're doing large scale studies on these kind of things. We would have to first of all, as a group, admit neurofeedback works before we're going to admit that we're going to find side effects because we would have to be doing studies to look for something. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it would be if I were a parent too. Um, I find it somewhat insane uh, that individuals are doing this DYI, do it yourself. Um, you know, you can go online and buy something and think you can press a button and fix your brain. And, and, and really, height of madness. So first of all, you must understand that this should not be done by somebody that doesn't have a lot of experience doing it. And certainly not by an amateur or an individual at home. Well, that would be the first thing. Second is, um, you know, it's very similar to the same discussion you would have with regards to medicine. Um, yeah. I, I say that I, I, I was facetious just now. However, what I mean is that 
say a child who has some cardiac abnormality and it's not known and they're given Ritalin, I mean, you know, they could have cardiac possible. Uh, I don't have to deal with that. So uh, that's good. Um, now, um, with um, that effects, um, their sleep, I mean, you know, sleep can get affected. That, that's one of the first things and one of the things that can get disrupted or changed. Um, but uh, everything that is happening with neurofeedback is being discussed with a practitioner and a clinician during the course of it. So mod changes can be made if, if a side effect happens. Bad habit, no. Um, the general nature of the way that it works should be is always towards the brain working more efficiently. Now, I have had parents who have children who have had, you know, whatever um, issues and not as action oriented. So they start getting more words. And with more words can come more disagreement. Right? So, yeah, I mean, certainly their personalities can come out more. Um, now, another thing I think is uh, that I've learned over m many years in doing this, and this recently came up, but it was with an adult, but the same thing is true with parents and children is that the, the request to get better grades. I recently had a, like, it wasn't to make more money. Like, that was, that's not an end goal of neurofeedback. And I said, I will not accept that because I can't be responsible for your work ethic. He got a little bit insulted. I did say that. <laughs> um, you see, the, the child might not care about grades. They might not, that might not make them tick. So maybe they'll be better at the rock climbing gym. They'll want to go there more. They'll want to do that more. So I guess you can improve the brain, but what the person does with that improved yes. brain is really up to them. Yeah. Just like if I said to a patient, you can take the Ritalin, but you sit in front of the computer game and play for right. hours. Yes, you'd be very focused. Exactly. You still not get any work done. Better grades. So there will too, right? So so yeah, that's where it gets tricky. Is is that I, I important to know what the mission is? You have to know what the top complaints are and know yeah. and have them recorded, and then make sure that there is no what I call mission creep. Because people at 10 sessions start to feel better and they start to say, oh, my attention's good. Can you work on my memory now? No, we have to re this part done first. So, so that happens to some degree. Um, generally, I find it very well tolerated. Um, always, you know, there's, there's not, I, I haven't had a negative outcome. Let me just say that I can't, tell you that there's any side effect that people experience would be long-lasting from this now. There's nothing in the literature to say that if you did neurofeedback properly, you, know, um, you would uh, induce a psychotic episode or you would induce some kind of mania or depression or something really serious like that. Any video strobic effect can, can, can cause a person with a um, low seizure threshold to have a seizure. Everyone yeah. can have a seizure with the proper, you know, video stroke. So, exactly. Anyone can have a seizure. Environment. So, yeah. 
Um, I have not seen that. I have um, uh, uh, not my favorite thing to do, but assisted with individuals who have you know, there's nothing else that, that can be done. And this is working very closely with their doctor, uh, which I always do, um, that, that um, it helps in seizure. Um, it's not something I would do. I do like. Yeah. Um, and when looking at the EEG, one should be aware of what that looks like. So if there's an underlying tendency, it would be known ahead of time. Uh, you said seizure. What were the other ones you said? Psychosis, I've never, well. Psychosis, bipolar. Look, you can have, I mean, I don't think so. Uh, I've never seen that. Um, I saw recently in the literature that there was a favorable response in a meta-analysis in schizophrenia, which was surprised to me. Um, So one would think, it gets better. I can tell you that in studies on remote psychiatry and schizophrenia, there is no increase in psychosis, no increase in like, you know, projections towards the literature I've reviewed. Um, so I don't think so. Um, mania, if somebody was bipolar um, and they were trained improperly, uh, I say that would be impossible. Um, and, uh, but the same thing would happen probably if they stayed up for three days straight or, you know, um, yep. Deprivation can induce um, mania. (laughs) Was, was a reasonable one. Yes. Um, so there's ab reaction, which is like a, you know, very strong emotional response. Um, yeah. With certain types of training and individuals. Yeah traumatic stress disorder or, you know, long-term psychological stressors and issues, that can start to, that that can be there. That can be there. And that just takes a a skilled therapist, you know, skilled clinician. And I think it's important for people to find the correct practitioner for neurofeedback, someone who has knowledge and experience with also the issues the underlying issues and knowing how to not make it worse um, and be cognizant that that is part of the picture you're seeing and how we could improve it because you can have someone who has no issues or, or top athlete, for example, and just wanted to do um, performance improvement. And that would be generally a, a more straightforward case because there aren't so many landmarks well, to have to navigate uh- through. Um, actually is uh, takes more um, specialty work because oftentimes their brain is abnormal when you compare it to the general population because to have very good reaction time or visual acuity or some such. And so um, you actually have to structure the training program around, you want to enhance areas and be able to recognize when an area is actually not pathologic it's not abnormal it's not causing some problem i guess outlier is a better word rather than abnormal they're outliers because clearly they're, they're olympians <laughs> so they must be the top 0.00 you know one percent so and and the whole 
the whole premise of the brain mapping is that it's compared to a general population or an average numbers. So they would look abnormal, quote unquote, but they could be on the really so, good end uh, of you know, I'm being, the scale. This is, we're talking to me, for, for me, we're talking a little bit about things for a decade or so really, um, you know, I, mm. I mentioned, I guess, to you, um, but we, my company Minerva, um, just received a patent for using artificial intelligence to analyze electroencephalogram, right? So it's sort of the next stage in, in looking at QEEG, where it's not even really, we're not doing fast Fourier transform, called the Mortlet wavelets, which is a much smaller derivation of the waves. Mm -hmm. And so in this process, we can actually get a bit better picture. And what we can do is called clustering. So what we can do with, say, I have a fairly extensive database of performance athletes and artists, uh, photographers. And so we can actually get that specific with clustering individuals into what their brain would be sort of expected to be based on other individuals in a cluster and even individuals. So, so what that does, yeah. so what we so, can do with that is um, bank protocols based on previous outcome, right? So we can look at all of the brains of a person that had a specific pattern and look at what those outcomes are. And then we can design that individual's training, neurofeedback, most optimal fit. And it's not a guess anymore. So that also takes out a lot of these steps that you were mentioning. Okay. Yeah. That would be great. I mean, it's computers are amazing, and if it can assist us to make things more accurate and predictive, and I'm all for it. Thank you. And congratulations on the patent. So, if people need to look for you on the World Wide Web, where would they go? Yeah. Could you Minerva.com. M Y N E U R V A. dot com. And we'll post that in the notes. And thank you so much. I'm still learning a lot from you. So um, I think we'll have many more sessions to go with reviewing you know, and learning more. So thanks so much for your advice. So have a This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and is not intended to treat or diagnose any medical condition. This podcast and its producers disclaim any responsibility for adverse effects that result from the use of this information. Opinions of guests are their own and are not endorsed by this podcast. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions. We do not make any representation or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Both producers and guests may have direct or indirect interest in the products and services mentioned. If you think you have a medical condition, please consult a licensed physician. You can find us at anantawellbeing.com and follow us at anantawellbeing on Facebook and Instagram. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review to help other like-minded people find us.